Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. It's just about slowing down for a minute and studying something and going deeper on that. We can make a big difference in the supply chain with just what we buy. We've made a big difference on single-use plastics by eliminating some and studying how we can eliminate more. We can make a big difference on fill in the blank. I just remind myself on the daily, slow down, put in the time to go deep on something and try to really, you know, move the needle. This is Dan Simons, co-owner and CEO of Farmer's Restaurant Group, a successful restaurant group in the Washington area, which is on a mission to share the important measures of why family farming is so important to ensure that we have healthy foods on our plates and a balanced planet in the future. Dan is also the founder of Our Last Straw, a non-for-profit organization devoted to stop the use of plastic straws and raising awareness about the environmental and health hazards of using single-use plastics. As I was studying Farmer's Restaurant Group, I learned they had a very different ownership group. The majority of the company is owned by more than 47,000 American family farmers, and you will learn from this conversation the power of having the right stakeholders in stormy winters is essential. Dan also shares his hospitality and industry experience and encourages responsible industry practices so we can build a better industry for the future. We also get great insights into how they have been building and are building a great company fueled by strong culture and giving back to the communities they are part of. We also hear Dan's view on the future and how he is working on showing up as the best version of himself every day. Before you tune in, please sign up for our weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, which is packed with more Maverick insights, strategies, and tools. Find the links in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. Are you ready for a masterclass in thinking and acting differently? This is then for you. Enjoy. Today, I'm uh, having a guest, uh, there's a business leader, there's building a business, there's a force for good, I would say. And uh, he and uh, his team and his co-founder are changing the beliefs we have around farming through restaurants. And it's an absolutely credible business to look from the outside and the things they're trying to do and how they try to do more than just being a business, but actually also make a positive impact on the people that's employed, the society they're part of, and our planet. With that said, welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you, Michael. I'm excited to be here and looking forward to our chat. Uh, me too. And uh, we started off uh, before we started this conversation with uh, one of my favorite subjects, you know, we, we call it productivity. So we already had a had a deep dive into productivity and we will 
probably share a couple of hacks with you here because that was something where we had a shared passion. But we start another place. Let me hear a bit about your story, Dan, and also, of course, the story of founding Farmers, which I made a slight uh, connection to here in the intro without saying the name. Um, so what has been your journey, the journey with founding Farmers, how's all happening and where you are now? Sure. Well, I can tell you where we are now. Um, we are seven restaurants and our own bakery and our own distillery, making our own distilled spirits uh, with about... 1146 employees i think as of yesterday so seven restaurants just over 1100 employees uh, and about 90 million dollars us in annual revenue and so how'd we get here well we opened the first founding farmers in uh, 2008 so it's been quite a journey over the last 14 years but prior to that my business partner michael vakurvich and i we worked together for other restaurants, uh, other restaurant companies. I spent ten years, I would say, in the you know the the restaurant corporate world, coming up as a manager, um, manager, general manager, director, vice president, etc. And then in my early thirties, said, um, you know, I'm done working for other people. Not so much because I thought I could do it better, um, but it was just so annoying to have someone else in charge for me that I always thought didn't really harness and elevate and magnify all of the talent inside companies. I worked with so many great people over the years. And I thought, well, what if you just had a company that tried to amplify and magnify all the talent instead of making it about the owner? And so that was really my and my partner's inspiration. Um, Our first restaurant before we opened Founding Farmers uh, we tasted serious failure, raised money from friends and family and fools, as is said, um, opened a, a small little fried chicken restaurant, failed, lost all our money. Um, I spent three years living in my mother-in-law's basement, uh, which was not the original plan, but I guess in hindsight, you know, sounds like a good part of the entrepreneurial journey. I'm grateful to my mother-in-law, but indeed that was not the plan, but uh, we certainly tasted failure, lost more money than we had. And then with a bit of luck and a bit of good fortune and a good team have now have now grown the company that we call Farmers Restaurant Group with this main brand founding farmers into what it is today. There's also a connection with founding farmers and the farmers. It's not just a name. There's actually a, a real big reason behind you called it founding farmers. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I think that's quite inspirational and you know, I would say trailblazing for, for restaurants. When you're starting a company where you get your money from really matters. From my perspective, it is, it's the formative aspect, one of the formative aspects of the DNA from which the company grows. And so we were lucky enough, my partner Michael and I, to meet and connect with a group of American family farmers, specifically the North Dakota Farmers Union, which is what it sounds like. It's a group of uh, thousands of family farmers from North Dakota. And they had a vision of finding ways to advocate more on their own behalf, on behalf of all American independent family farmers. And that vision was to, to try to get the guest uh, at, at a restaurant level or a shopper at the grocery level to understand where their food comes from 
and the difference between a family farmer and a corporate farm. So we were connected with them. They brought their farming knowledge, their their core mission of supporting and advocating for farmers and their capital. And we brought our restaurateurship, uh, our knowledge of the industry, and we had really nice overlapping passion about the planet and the role of environmentalism. And I think our view of capitalism, which is that there's more than one stakeholder. Sure, profit is an important piece, but it is indeed a piece, not the whole pie. So we we put that together with us and the North Dakota Farmers Union, and that that is the ownership of what is Farmers Restaurant Group. And uh, it's very interesting. I wrote down, as you were saying, it, when you start out a business, it's very important where you get your money from. Can you talk a bit more about that and uh, and how that actually impacts businesses, both when you see it goes well and like in your own situation, but also when it when it goes really wrong? Well, when I first you know, wrote, well, I, I probably wrote my first business plan in college, but didn't, wasn't able to do much with it. But when I f- wrote my first business plan that I was able to get funded, I thought that I just needed money. And I thought money was a commodity or the fuel. And that the important part were the ideas and the vision and the purpose, and then the people and the talent and, and, you know, the, the nuts and bolts that you build. And what I learned, um, both through raising talent, through reading and studying about other companies, from talking to other entrepreneurs about their failures and when things went wrong, just developed my own philosophy or view that the the money comes with strings attached. And if you either don't see the strings or you don't analyze the direction in which they pull or the way those strings may pull when things get difficult, inevitably, businesses don't hit their business plan. And so it's either not on the right time, it's not on the right uh, financial returns, you need more money, whatever the struggles are. I've yet to meet anybody that doesn't have to pivot, adapt, change, and you know overcome a, an unforeseen hurdle. So I wanted our capital to be aligned in every way. And what I learned was at first, wow, this isn't possible. I'm not going to be able to find an investor that doesn't want to talk about the capital stack and talk about where their debt is subordinate to what and who has control. They want to be able to fire the the entrepreneur. And there's this whole list of vocabulary about what the capital wants. And I thought, well, that's problematic because what happens when I perform poorly for a phase? I don't want to lose control. What happens when I believe I know what's right and I'm in a boardroom with someone that now bought a board seat and they think they know what's right, but they don't know our people and our reason. And I think things like quarterly returns are just a fictitious construct solely supporting the the needs of, of an investor. So I put all that together. And then when we met the North Dakota Farmers Union, and I mean, this is where, Michael, you at least in my story, you get lucky. You know, you meet people or you put something together or you have a conversation that that triggers a realization of common ground. And so it's that it's with that understanding that I un, I really was clear on the value of their capital as they saw it and their goals and the requirements and what they wanted. 
and what I believed when things got bad, which way the reins would yank. And I've seen things go bad in our company, especially in the past two years. And I was right about these providers of capital and these partners. They've been amazing. That's very interesting you said because uh, you were lucky. But I guess in a way you had manifested it by being very clear about what you're looking for. Because often when I meet people raising money either in a startup situation or further, they just talk about they need to get some capital, not who they're going to get it from. They don't spend much time on really clarifying that profile and make sure what does that, how will that profile act when it gets difficult and, and all these things which are so important if you want to do the right thing with your business and you want to be purpose-driven like yourself. So that was just my little reflection on that. Um, well, what is the, the, the core of your, your purpose uh, with founding farmers? What is it that you want to change? What kind of change are you on the pursuit for? Our company exists to advocate on behalf of independent family farmers. And so elevating them, advocating for them, being a demand creator for family farmed product, trying in our own small way uh, to influence our industry and other restaurants and diners when they go shopping to just get some new words or vocabulary, teach people to ask questions. Oh, where does that come from? And then to teach about the difference between a corporate farm and a family farm. That's why we exist. And along with that purpose, we care about how we do it. And so I use the word sustainable in, in really a dictionary definition, meaning we want to do it such that we can do it a decade from now and three decades from now. And if we could pass the company on to our next generation of leaders inside the company, to me, that's sustainable, a business that is still here tomorrow. And that includes, from our perspective, we need fresh water and fresh air and soil with nutrients, or we won't be able to buy the kind of food that we buy and our supply chain won't exist. So I want our business and our restaurants to sustain, and therefore we consider the environment and the planet one of our stakeholders, side by side with profit and the guest and the employee and several other stakeholders. And so that's, that's our purpose, and that's how we go about our purpose, making our decisions through this multi-stakeholder view. Can you give us an example about how you bring that purpose to, to life in, in the day-to-day -day running of, of restaurants, which, which we know sometimes, especially the last couple of years, can be quite challenging. But some, a couple of examples for the listeners out there, how you actually take that great purpose and put it into action in the front line. So with our farmer partners, we've invested in um, shrinking, shortening, unbundling the supply chain. And a specific example of that is that um, our farmers own their own 18-wheeler. And so a few times a month, we haul food directly from the Midwest um, you know, to the East Coast of the US, uh, which we dip down into Kentucky, where we pick up some grits from, from farmers that we know down there. And what we have done by doing that is we took a risk with capital. So that's one is putting some money at risk. We made things more difficult for ourselves um, because it's easier to just order certain product from an existing order guide from existing distributors. So we took some risk and we made things more difficult. That's generally not what you do if you just want profit. And in return, what we did is our food goes through 
the food that comes on this truck goes through two or three less levels or layers of the supply chain, which physically means less miles, less fuel. It means a shorter duration from farm into the restaurant. And these things benefit the actual food. They benefit the value creation. I can pay a farmer more and I can charge less to a guest if there aren't two or three more middle uh, middlemen in that supply chain. So that's just, that's an example of seeing the stakeholders in a sort of a different equation than just efficiency or profit. That's very interesting to say that with the, the supply chain. What do you think, Dan? Do you think that that's also where the biggest opportunities are for restaurants if they really want to make positive impact on their stakeholders exactly start looking in their own supply chain? Michael, that, that's certainly one. But it, when you said to me, you know, give me an example, uh, that's just one that comes to mind. I, I, I was, my brain was also saying, well, I, I obviously need to give an example of something that we do for our people because the way to elevate restaurants and the farmers we support is to try to elevate our communities and society. So I've been working on a program where I can help pay off high interest debts that our employees have accumulated in their personal lives. And I can do it in a low or no interest way to liberate them from that stress so they can bring a more, uh, you know, a lighter, less stressed human into the workplace and perform better. So do I think restaurateurs should start in the supply chain? Uh, I think just start somewhere. And every restaurateur I know has already started, right? It's an industry full of people who generally love their people, love their product, and love their guest. So I think it's just about slowing down for a minute and studying something and going deeper on that. We can make a big difference in the supply chain with just what we buy. We made a big difference on single-use plastics by eliminating some and studying how we can eliminate more. We can make a big difference on fill in the blank. I just remind myself on the daily, slow down, put in the time to go deep on something and try to really, you know, move the needle. That's quite interesting you say, uh, go slow and, and go deeper. I had a guest recently, Tom Barton, I know really well from a burger chain here in, in the UK called Honest Burger. And they really questioned the thing honest. And they went out three years ago and said, we want all our beef to be regenerative beef. And now they're there. They just launched last week, but it took them three years to go really deep and try to solve this complex supply chain issue because they had to go directly to the farmers and they had to create quite a little union of because they need to buy quite a lot of beef in the year. And that was like his first step really to try to do something on the supply chain. They do other things as well, but that's really interesting that you really commit to a project like that and, and go through. And that's what you say as well. You need You need to commit and go deep. And, and Michael, and I love hearing that about Honest Burger. And at the same time, I, I say that and my words are, you know, slow down and go deep. And simultaneously, be aggressive and giddy up and we got to get things done and we move fast. So it's, it's, it's both of those things at the same time. Um, I think that you can make progress quickly and be aggressive Sometimes for me, it's just acknowledging there's a lot of progress to be made before you before you reach a goal line. So you know you can you can run a marathon fast. It's still a marathon, and so that I think is the combination of that entrepreneurial, 
you know, let's get it done. I'm not opposed at all to that, you know, the fail fast mantra and the try things, et cetera. So I feel like it's important to highlight that these philosophies, they do go hand in hand. Certainly in our industry where you do need to grow the food. And so inherently, it's not just tech and software, write the code, release it, put it out into the wild, and, and then fix it as it goes. You got to grow the food. And, and a recognition of the land and the humans that grow the food, and then those of us that add the value to that, uh, sometimes just with a little bit of salt, you know, we can keep it simple, but uh, you can push and push. But if you don't go deep and study it, you, you generally don't end up somewhere remarkable. And it's quite interesting, but it leads me to the next thing I wanted to dive a bit into. You talk about the, the very strong purpose about, you know, giving back to farming, changing the perception of farming. How do you see that have actually informed your culture and what has that done for your culture for, for working in founding farmers? And It's nice in our restaurants that we have quite a lot to talk about and discuss and teach our, our team at every level rather or in addition to just the obvious things, right? You know, need to work with a saute cook to saute. We need to work with a, with a dishwasher on water temperature and sanitation. You know, there, there are the nuts and bolts of, of the restaurants. But we're quite often talking about, you know, what it takes to get the ingredients to the back door. We're talking about the mental health of our employees inside the four walls and the mental health of farmers. You know, the, the suicide rate in America of family farmers is substantially higher than the population, you know, uh, in mass. And so you asked me, you know, how does this affect the culture, our advocacy for farming? What the advocacy for farming does is make us more mindful of, you know, there's no such thing as farming without the farmer. And there's no such thing as a farmer without the person who is the farmer. And that is true for the dishwasher and the cook and the chef and the manager. So this view informs the culture of our company and the culture of our restaurants because these are the things I'm focusing on as what I believe and my partner believes are the equation that add up to this plus this plus this plus this equals hospitality. As opposed to, oh, I'm, I'm not necessarily just managing food cost and managing service. What I'm doing is adding up all these ingredients that I think if we focus on these ingredients in the equation, the result is great hospitality. And so that it really informs our culture in the most comprehensive way possible because it's what we end up talking about and focusing on and it's how we believe we get the results. And that leads me to the very nicely to the next thing because uh, you have been uh, awarded a great place to work in uh, in, in the areas you operate. Uh, you are you have a lot of people that, that loves to work for you. You you talk about it a lot yourself. How you build this unique culture that people love and support. Could you tell us a bit about how you actually done that from from the outset? I, I guess as always, it's a journey. It didn't happen day one. Uh, and also, what do you do actually to keep on evolving? The, the culture. Culture for me is very intentional 
every company has a culture, every culture has every culture has its own culture, every family has a culture. So uh, culture exists whether or not it's intentional. So it's quite easy in a country or a family because if you have if you're fortunate to have multiple generations and you're close and language and tradition and habits all get passed down and absorbed from the very beginning. So what we did intentionally when when we started our restaurants, our first restaurant, was to write down what we called our constitution. And it's an eight-page document that lays out our passions and our purposes, uh, our goal. It lays out our promises to our staff, what we commit to them, what we ask for and require in return as promises back to us and the company. And then we intentionally teach it. We hold classes on it. Um, my partner, Mike, and I, you know, in the 14 years that we've had the company, um, we have always taught these classes ourselves multiple times throughout the year. Ongoing, I will forever be teaching um, our constitution, which is the documentation that lays out and explains and defines in, in painstaking detail our what and our why and our how. So for me, that's the most intentional thing we do with the culture. Write it down and teach it. It's not about, uh, we don't put it on posters and put it up on the wall. We don't shrink it down and distill it to just, you know, six principles. It's not a four sentence thing. It's eight and a half pages of every word we wrote and it covers a lot of ground. So that then becomes the, it's both a stage and a platform for our team to stand on, a shield for any individual to protect themselves with, a way to shine a light on ourselves or hold up a mirror when we're falling short. Uh, and that's our process that has served us well with building the culture. And uh, I guess that document also evolved over years because that's quite interesting. Do, have, you, have you made many changes to it? Have it actually stayed the same over the years? I have made, I would say, a few changes. It's probably had uh, seven amendments in 14 years, but the amendments have never, we've never changed uh, the purpose. We've never changed a principle. We've never changed a promise. Uh, and we've never changed a stakeholder. So that has served us really well. What we have done is enhance and add some definition to what we mean by community, to what we mean by planet. Um, we have added some language that, that fit in really nicely to bring some more specifics around what we mean by um, the whole human being. That, that language was always there, um, but some new vocabulary relating to diversity you know, there was that we now have a reference in there about um, that that touches on the topic of, you know, the way we our view is sort of all humans can cut across sort of the gender spectrum and diversity is about humanity. So there's some vocabulary there that plugged right into our promises of treating all people with respect and kindness and humility. And so those are some of the amendments. Um, and I love our process of thinking about those words and it has performed much like the US constitution and that's why we named it the US the, the constitution we wanted our document and our guiding principle 
to be more powerful than me or my partner, Mike, or our farmer partners. We wanted to agree to this philosophy and methodology and have it hold us accountable to that. And, and it's, uh, it's worked really well. And how do you then uh, make sure that, you know, how do you implement that into your, your organization? I'm also thinking about how do you, how do you measure that it's working? You know, and I guess my last question on that as well would be, and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we get around them all, but how do you actually reward people when they lift the constitution? Measurement is key. I love that you use that word, Michael. Um, you're obviously no stranger to talking about philosophy and then being a real business leader, right? And so, um, we do indeed measure it, and we measure it by asking the stakeholders how they see it. So we measure um, we measure it through employee surveys, which we do every year. We measure it through investor satisfaction, which on one hand we know we know the cash distributions that we share with investors, but we also measure investor sentiment. Um, and which I'm able to do through conversations and specific questions that I ask. Um, and an example of that measurement is investors that have stayed with us through the pandemic, even when we said, you know, there aren't, there aren't any returns, the losses may be massive, and, uh, and I'm not sure what the future of the industry holds. Would you like to continue to invest? Uh, and so there are measurements through questions, and then you gauge the actions of those stakeholders. Um, we hold ourselves to measuring what actions we've taken. For example, we formed a nonprofit uh, specifically focused on the restaurant industry to help educate on how to reduce single-use plastics. And we worked upstream with manufacturers and it's a business-led environmental nonprofit. And so we measure our own actions in each of these stakeholder categories. And then when we're not doing well, we look in the mirror, we acknowledge our shortcoming, and then we decide what we're going to do differently. And that, that, that for me is the beauty of measurement. It's not about catching us what we're doing right. It's about having a clear look in the mirror that says, wow, I said I would do this and I'm falling short. And sometimes I'm just flat out failing. Sometimes I've made no progress on something I promised to do. And so um, that, you know, I, I, I guess is that, ongoing dose of uh humility of you know i'm failing at the objectives that i set okay and it's an equal dose of motivation of so what are we going to do differently to get better results so that's our process that ends up rewarding culture because people get promoted and elevated when they hold it up we teach it in an ongoing way our all of our training material everything written gets what we say pulled through the filter of our constitution. So the language is woven in and there are habits and traditions that have manifested based on uh, what we said we would do, events for employees, employee benefits. There's a reason we have free mental health benefits for all of our employees. All 1,146 have access to free mental health support. And that goes back to what we said we would do in the Constitution about focusing on the individual and helping them be the best they can be. You can't say that and then not work on mental health. Because if you say that and you don't work on mental health, you're a liar. 
Yeah, and it's, it's quite interesting because this is like one of probably one of the biggest challenges uh, we have. Besides, we just had a pandemic as a business, but like the the mental health of our staff, there's not enough of them. The staffing crisis, the global staffing crisis in, in many industries, especially in the hospitality and restaurant industry where you see that. And it, it comes back to uh, to something you, you, you talked about, we talked about before we went on as well, because I think a lot of mental health is also because you feel out of control. Uh, you don't know how to manage life. Things are just getting way over your head. And you talked about that you spend a lot of time on actually training your people in different things. And one of the things you mentioned was productivity. You, you're training all the obvious things uh, around your culture and how you hire and probably in leadership development. But could you talk a bit about that? Because I think I, that was quite unique for me when you said that. This is like we have a, a module where we actually learn people to become better at managing themselves. I, I think it's interesting that the, the standard approach to hiring is to sort of interview people for their um, competence at the specific job description and then train them on the specific job and then manage them to get results on those activities, whatever the job is. And I've just always looked at it and thought, well, don't you need to know how they feel? Because it was always clear to me about myself that when I felt good about myself, when I trusted myself, believed in myself, was confident, felt strong physically and stable and solid mentally, I did my best work as a bartender, as a host, as a manager, as a kitchen manager, you know, that's, and so when I was told early in my career uh, in a lot working for other people, you know, leave your problems at the door, you know, like when you show up, it's like you put on the uniform, this is what you do. I always thought, well, that's, that's bullshit, right? That's, it's not possible, first of all. And w why? Why Why would you want me to do that? Why wouldn't you want to help me actually be at my best instead of pretending that something isn't pulling me down? So while, yes, we teach a lot in our company about the jobs, we really teach uh, even more so about um, managing oneself. You know, humans don't come with a... Um, with a user manual, but you actually can put together a user manual. So we teach personal productivity. I pull in material from, from other teachers and writers like Catherine Price, who wrote a brilliant book, How to Break Up With Your Phone. Um, so we have a, about 15 hours of curriculum around personal productivity, time management, engaging with technology, building powerful and effective relationships, managing oneself before trying to lead others. And that curriculum, especially the personal productivity and time management, when our folks see it on their agenda, you know, people often think like, this will be boring or what will happen. And after these personal productivity classroom sessions, it's our highest rated class. And people, you know, come back in and say like, this has been great for me. And often the stories I get are, I'm getting along so much better with my spouse, or I realized I wasn't being the parent that I wanted to be. And then sometimes people pause and say like, oh, well, and it's helping me at work. And I'm thinking, you're one person. The, you know, a human is an indivisible whole. Gandhi said that. So 
Not that you want to hear me preach about Gandhi, but uh, that perspective that a person is an individual whole, of course then we want to teach and massage and inform and inject and elevate that whole person. And what do we end up with? Delicious bread, our own vodka, right? Great hospitality, uh, bacon lollies at the table that the guest has ever tasted anything like it. But we do it through trying to, to help the whole human. And, and Michael, it's clear to me, I need all the same help. I need to attend these classes just as much as I need to teach them. I need support for my own mental health. I struggle with uh, my own negative thought track and some eating disorder around food. I've dealt with my own bouts of you know anxiety and struggle. And so I think of that and I think, yeah, and I also you know sprained my ACL. And I've got, you know, limited mobility in one of my wrists. You know, who cares? It's physical. It's mental. It's all one human thing. And I need people to help me lift myself up so that I can help lift up others. It it sounds so obvious, but you can tell me if I sound crazy to you. No, I think we're very aligned on that. So it's going to be difficult. You're preaching to the, the convert. But I think it's very interesting that you always in, in a business talk about how you're going to transform the customer's life. And here we talk about how do we actually start with transforming the employee's life. And actually, you know, as you, you know, when somebody comes and says to you, actually, it helped me at home with managing my relationship, make me a better parent. That's going to come a million times again in trust, loyalty, and also it's skills they maybe not be able to learn anywhere else. And we think about as an industry right now where the perception is that hospitality is not a great place to, to work in, in the wider population. These kind of stories about actually where life transformation can happen. Because you can learn skills, but like learning managing yourself is what probably one of the biggest transformation you can have. So I think you are absolutely spot on. It's so interesting. And I hope really there's some people out there getting inspired by that. And it doesn't have to be huge. You don't have to start with 15 hours. You can start with a one-hour session about just how you plan your time better. Uh, uh, spending less time on the phone, as you mentioned in the book as well. I think that's a, that's a very good book. That's gone on my book list, and we're going to put it in the show notes as well for people because like, the phone is so addictive for, for many people, especially young people, That's because uh, also they never had anything else. They never had a life as maybe we have had without a phone. So That's right. So they don't know necessarily what they what else they might be able to get to by minimizing the the you know device addiction michael in in one of the classes i teach i have everybody take out their phone which of course in the beginning i have them silence and put actually out of sight because the the research is clear that even seeing your phone causes a degree of distraction um but i have everybody take out their phone go to their notifications and turn off all their notifications. But first I show them my notifications by scrolling through. And there's only of the, I don't know, 100 apps or whatever, 300 apps that are on my phone, there's only about three things that have notifications turned on. And then those notifications are, are intentional with what sort of notifications. And so most people have never gone to this setting on their phone. They go to this setting on their phone and every single one is in the on setting. And so we go through this exercise. Some people it takes 15, 20 minutes to actually turn off every notification. And the feedback that I get over the next few days is just stunning for people. And, you know, I have people in the class, just like there'll be people listening, they get phantom vibrate. 
right? They feel the vibration in their leg or their butt cheek or wherever they usually keep their phone and phantom vibrate is a neurological response. Even when your phone doesn't vibrate, you think you felt it. You know, we're rewiring our brains. And so you can help people in a 10-minute class. Just turn off your notifications. Just do that. And it opens up this awareness to, wow, I can do more to help protect myself, which lets me be more attentive, be more connective to the humans that I'm around, engage more. Satisfaction goes up. Productivity goes up. It's a winning strategy. And you can do that in five minutes with people. Yeah, and it's interesting also that, you know, you take them away from that constant thing of they have to respond to things because your brain will use so much power and create so much anxiety. And especially if this the news they're getting up on their notification, that's the one thing I say to people, turn off the news for the, as the first thing. You don't need to know what's going on. You're going to be told what's going on if it's important enough. Uh, coming back to uh, to the business, the last bit of it would be really interesting to touch on again. When I looked on... I unfortunately never been in any of restaurants. We need to make that up on a, on the next trip to the US. But it feels like when you study online that these people as customers with you really feel they're more than customers. They feel like they're part of some kind of community and they're like raving fans, I would almost say. Uh, and they have a really deep connection with your, your place. Can you talk a bit about that? uh how you created that and you know how you 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 keep that evolving that experience i guess it is certainly some large percentage of our guests on a daily basis are are simply hungry they've heard that it's a good restaurant and they they come in and they have uh you know something delicious they're they're treated nicely the value is good and they leave and they ideally leave thinking oh that was good and i'd come back and they don't know everything that is just below the surface. Uh, we're cautious not to try to preach to every diner or every guest. We do have a bit of a spiel we start off with um, if someone is first time in. But obviously, as you can imagine, we're not weaving in all of this philosophy. But then what happens is guests come back. And then they learn a bit more. And then they engage you know, you know, some restaurants believe in sort of silent, sophisticated service. We don't do that at all. We want our bartenders and our servers and our folks at the front desk to talk to the guest and connect and share your story. And if a guest asks you a personal question, answer it personally. And if they ask about the company, tell them your view of what makes it special here. There's no repeat this exact thing about our purpose. It's just tell them what you think here. And what that has led to over time and certainly how we communicate on social media and probably what I write on on my, you know, Dan Simon Says blogs, you end up building a reputation. I, I think most of the time reputations are deserved. You know, they're built over time and they're in the aggregate of what you put out there as individual business leaders. And so we have built over the years a, a legion of loyal guests. And I think they're loyal because they feel that we are loyal to them and what they care about. And this, you know, shared values or there's enough common ground and, you know, they care. But nobody cares about every single thing we did if you're, or that we do. If your issue is the way a company treats its employees and you read or hear from one of our staff 
about, you know, that they get paid vacation time or they get mental health benefits or, you know, or they, they got free food through the whole pandemic, even when they were laid off for however long. Um, and those employees that care about that, they're like, wow, this is a restaurant I want to support because of the way they treat their people. If you're a diner that cares about farmers, then, you know, you, you care. If you're a diner that cares about climate change and you hear about the way we buy electricity or what we try to do to mitigate our own footprint. You know, we're causing damage to the environment every single day, the way we run our business, but we acknowledge it and we try to minimize it and we take steps to eliminate it where we can. So that I think, Michael, is over time what has built up this really committed and vocal following such that, you know, if if a food reviewer writes something negative about our restaurant, thousands of people will say to that one critical food reviewer, you know, you don't get it. These guys uh, and their team are doing so much more than maybe the flavor of one sauce. We make mistakes from food. We cook from scratch. We have our own bakery. We bake our own bread every single day. Of course, one makes mistakes. And so for me, a, the kind of guest I want is the type of guest that we've done enough and shown enough that when we make a service mistake, we're slow with food or we make a, uh, you know, a cooking error, that the guest says, oh, I wanted to let you know, you know, this wasn't great. And they're nice to us about it. And they're rooting for us and that they're kind to our staff and that they're more inclined to, you know, tip generously if they see that we're, you know, we're struggling on a shift because they realize that there must be a problem. And so we have so many of these guests. And so inevitably we end up, you know, we send a lot of food to you know, funerals. We send a lot of food to uh, high school graduations or nursery school graduations um, because that we don't charge for because these guests have been part of the, our restaurant for so long. And then people go through milestones in life. And what can we do? You know, send them food, show them that you love them. And when they go through hard times and are dealing with a cancer treatment at the hospital and finally get to get a loved one out for, for a, an escape from a really serious illness for a few days from a hospital, you know, they want to come and dine with us and we cook for them specially. So I appreciate you asking about that. We never tried to create raving fans by saying the guest is always right. We didn't try to create loyal customers by um, making the food and the service perfect. We tried to do it, you know, with humans for humans. And I'm, I'm proud of the relationships that get built when you do it in that that way. Yeah, super interesting. It almost seems like it comes very well from our conversation is from the inside out, not from the outside in, how you built your your whole the service culture around your business. What about the um the industry's role? You talk about that, you know, you use your business as a force for good, but what is the the, the hospitality and restaurant industry's role in making the world a better place or changing the food system? What do you think our role is? We have the opportunity to continue to add rungs to the ladder at the bottom. And certainly in the US, and I think it's probably true in a lot of places around the world, um, it's not only hard to climb the ladder, it's hard to get on the ladder. You know, especially if you've made a mistake in life and been incarcerated, or you didn't have the good fortune to be born at a place, uh, you know, into a family, socioeconomically, you know, class, whatever a society is sort of holding people down with. 
And in our industry, we can add rungs to the bottom of the ladder. We can lift people up. Okay, so you don't speak the language of the country that you find yourself in. No problem. We can we can bring you in and teach you the job and get you into, like for us, we teach English classes, no charge. And so adding people onto the ladder, you know, in the US, we obviously have this huge problem with incarceration. You know, we just love to lock people up. We love to lock up people of color. And then it's supposed to be about paying a debt to society. But in our country, it's a permanent scarlet letter that you can never get rid of. It's awful. But in our industry, you know what we can do? We can hire people without background checks. And we can hire people based on who they are today and not judge their past. And then we can help them build a resume and build skills and teach them leadership. You know, cooking is about love and leadership and team building, and it's a sport. So people can build all of these skills. And we can provide wraparound services to people that have some other struggle. We can we can be the parents where they don't have them. We can educate on basic financial things. We can help those that don't know how to get a bank account, get a bank account without fees. We can cash people's checks so we can help them send money abroad without being ripped off by the money movers. This is what I love about our industry. Adding rungs to the ladder, helping people climb it. And then maybe they stay with us for a long time. That's great. And just as good or better, they go on to elevate themselves to what they are truly capable of, which lifts up your community and your society and helps them in their neighborhoods. And that, I think, is a place that our industry does a lot of already and can do so much more of with just a few additional steps and a bit of a change of mindset for some folks. But in general, I think I feel so safe doing this in our industry. Because I have so many friends and colleagues in our industry, and the natural thing is, of course, we take care of our people. And then the big corporations, you know, that's where I like to try to either role model, look, you can still make more money if you do this. Fine. You don't care about the people. You just care about profit. Your company will be more profitable if you elevate the people that work for you. So there's a there's a few ways to come at this. You don't have to be, I'm not just a bleeding heart, liberal tree hugger, you know, mental health advocate. I'm a capitalist. Um, I think I'm a conscious capitalist, right? There's multiple stakeholders. We can do this in a mindful way. And if I want my company to sustain, we need long-term profit. But you don't need short-term profit. And you can do things like invest in certain employee benefits that get you return in the long run. And so that these are some of the things that our industry can do really well and then role model for either the larger corporations and other industries of like, wow, look what's happening here with these these restaurants, big and small, that are able to do this with their people. Yeah, and I guess also we have a great opportunity now to, to change that because we need to do something to attract more people to the industry. So this is the, the opportunity right now and here to actually reconsider the ways you've done things and start thinking a bit more long-term about how you invest in people and how you actually help people getting a second chance in general. Michael, for for brain development, specifically and especially uh, the development of executive function in the brain, I don't know if there is a better brain development training ground than entry-level restaurant work 
for a 16 or a 17 or an 18 year old. You, you have to learn to rank and prioritize. You have to learn verbals and nonverbals. Um, there you have to combine physical and mental when you're working, um, when you're expediting in the kitchen, there's ranking and there's prioritization and you're fast switching with decision-making and the brain builds these skills when it is exposed to these challenges. And so if our industry would talk more about what we do, you want to be a CEO in 10 years, you want to lead a division, you want to, whatever it is, whatever corporate career ladder you want to climb, you need these skills that our industry can develop far more so than a job that might seem a bit more glamorous or you get to dress a bit more nicely or go sit in an office uh, that might, for some reason, be attractive. Uh, I wrote a blog about this, and it's one of the messages that I, I think if our industry can amplify, we would attract more people. I'm telling people all the time, don't take your restaurant job off your CV. Don't take your restaurant job off your resume. Tout it and use the vocabulary about what you've done and the skills you've developed. And then the more entry-level folks that we can attract and retain in a respect, you know, respect the industry way and look what we can do, the more that we'll keep long-term and the more folks that we can attract at, at a variety of levels. So that, that is something that we can certainly do as we all look for new ways to, to inspire people to come into the industry. And um, what about yourself? Like, how do you, it's been incredible, you know, unprecedented couple of years for, for the industry, lots of change. How do you actually keep yourself pro? We talked about how you help the employees and you said yourself, you're not perfect, but do you have like some routines and hacks you do as the, the co-founder, CEO of a, a very dynamic business, especially in a, just coming out of the pandemic and more challenges ahead? How do you actually make sure that you show up the best version every day. I'm a firm believer that each of us has to uh, put on our own oxygen mask before we put on the oxygen mask of those sitting next to us. You know, we've heard that on airplanes forever. And, and so it's not selfish to take care of oneself. It is sensible. Um, martyrs end up dead and it's no good if you run yourself off a cliff especially in the name of, I want to help my team, I want to help my family. And so it's clear to me, I need my mind and my body to perform. So my hacks, routines, um, and it, it's especially during the pandemic, you know, my anxiety level in um, April and May of 2020, you know, we'd gone from, uh, at the time, almost 1,400 employees to, to less than 100. Um, our government had closed our businesses to dine in. And so it was pretty extreme. You know, I had to sit down with my kids and um, my wife and I, and, you know, we sat down and said, look, we don't know what the future holds. I, I don't, I'm not sure if we'll be able to pay for the cars we have and, you know, let alone the Xbox Live subscription that the kids enjoy. And um, I was scared. And so my routine of, I never stopped exercising. You know, I love my Peloton. I love working out with a trainer. Um, I never stopped trying to eat right. I I've got some mental health issues around food. So that's always a struggle for me. But 
the routine of waking up in the morning, getting myself exposed to some sunlight for at least 15 minutes in the morning. People talk about meditation. For me, I just need 30 to 45 seconds of stillness every morning. Um, you know, the science says you need longer than that, but each person's an individual. I need to take a few minutes every single morning to just acknowledge who am I? Where am I? What's going to make it right today for me? What do I need? And so I do that every morning. It's easy. It's just a habit. So I try to pay attention to what I put into my body. I try to pay attention to using my body. I try to pay attention to the way sunlight uh, and the environment affects me. I try to take a few minutes of stillness. I think about breathing. And then when I need to talk to my therapist, I schedule an appointment, right? So no different than working out at the gym. I can I can do a Zoom now or I can go in person. Uh, and a, a mental health trainer is no different than a physical health trainer. So that, I think... Um, people don't usually ask me that recipe, so I, I didn't have it sort of written down. That's my, that's my off the cuff recipe of how I try to keep myself well so I can perform, you know, for my team and my family. Um, uh, I love that. I love that. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Dan. What about, um, if you should give one advice to, uh, industry leaders out there, what would that advice be in the current time we're in? Make sure you have some undistracted time every day to think and understand that daydreaming is thinking and that undistracted time even and maybe especially without an agenda is where the brain does its best work the subconscious gets to uh, you know rest a bit. Uh, the conscious gets to rest a bit. And I think amazing things happen. So um, yeah, the pandemic's been a hard time. But there's the next hard time. And this industry has never been easy. And frankly, nothing is easy. You know, that wasn't what that wasn't the promise when we were when we were given life like, oh, here, there, there's an easy path, go find it. So that I think is the only one piece of advice that I have because there's more hardship to come. Um, and I think, you know, if you're alive, you're fortunate. You get the chance to deal with the next hardship. I mean, what is the other, there's only other one alternative is don't, is don't be here. So I think some undistracted time on the daily, on the weekly, whatever it is, and acknowledge that and make that happen for yourself. That's my that's my bit for you. Yeah, it sounds like stillness is key in the uh, in uncharted waters as we're in, and we always will. It's, we're always in constant change. You just have to accept it. Is there is there one question you wish I've asked you uh, I hadn't asked you, and what would you have? Uh, what would that be, and what would you answer? You know, I your questions have have really got me thinking about. You know, you've just gotten me really engaged here, which is nice. So I don't, Michael. I think we've covered a lot of ground, and I don't, you know, for me, as long as I get to talk about mental health somewhere and I get to talk about a bit of stillness, uh, everything else are the things that probably sit atop that. So I really appreciate the conversation.
Yeah, it's great. And we're now, there's so much more I can tell you to the audience that so they should go definitely and, and visit uh, all the, the places where they can find you. So that, that will be my, my final question, Dan. Where can people learn more about Founding Farmers, you, um, where should they go? My website is dansimonssays.com. And so that's where my musings and my blogs are, um, often about the restaurant stuff, but often about whatever else is, is on my mind. Uh, and then foundingfarmers.com, along with farmersrestaurantgroup.com, are where you can learn all about our restaurants. We've got a few different brands in our distillery and our bakery and our other restaurants, etc. cetera. Uh, those are the sites you can find us. And then for me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, it's uh, LinkedIn. It's always at Dan Simon Says. Great, great, Dan. Thank you so much for taking the time out and actually sharing your, your learnings and your views and your beliefs about how we actually uh, use business as a, as a force for good and also touching on the importance of mental health, which we cannot forget after the, what we've been through, but also what's, what's, what's coming in, in the near future. So thank you for being uh, open and, and transparent about that as well. Thanks so much for having me. Amazing stuff, Dan. There are some great learnings in here on how to build and maintain a great culture. Now ask yourself, what can I do to improve my company culture? And if you want to learn more about how to build a great culture, tune in to episode number 163 with Ari Weinzweig, CEO of Singerman's Community of Businesses, on visioning and the myth of the one thing. A big thank you to Biz Simply supporting us bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at advice at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlton, who is the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. I really appreciate that you are listening in and spending your time on this. So if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website, hospitalitymarabooks.com. If you have any ideas and feedback for the shows or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymarabooks.com. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, via hospitalitymarabooks.com or the show notes. I'm Michael Tinkster, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick Podcast Show. Be Maverick!